All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from the Borough of Queens in New York City. It is the 27th day of December, 2022, and as such, this will be the last show of this year. And also, as I've been saying, I will soon be changing the way we do this show. And to keep up with uh, any changes to this show, I would encourage you to go to my website, jtaylormedia.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. We want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for this week's show are Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Gold Bull Resources, El Oro Resources, and Timberline Resources. I've titled today's show, Why Central Banks Will Choose Recession Over Inflation. This week, Daniel Lacalle, a professor of economics and a fund manager, will be talking to me for the first time. Uh, he'll be with me in the second half of today's show to explain why he thinks central banks will act differently this time by not kicking the can down the road, but by biting the bullet and accepting a recession rather than allowing capital and the dollar to be destroyed. And given Daniel's work as a fund manager, we may also ask him for some ideas about how we might protect ourselves from potential harm of a possible 2023 global recession. As I said, Daniel will be with me during the second half of today's show. The world we are living in now is much, much different than that of March 24, 2009. That was the first episode of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It was aired on the Voice America Business Channel. My very first guest on that show was G. Edward Griffin, author of a very famous book titled The Creature from Jekyll Island. The Creature from Jekyll Island is also known as the Federal Reserve Bank. Not only did Ed Griffin outline the reasons why, based on Federal Reserve policies, he anticipated a decline in the standard of living for Americans, but also why he voiced his ultimate concern that unless we return to an honest monetary system, we Americans are destined to lose our personal freedoms and, uh, and property rights to an emerging dictatorship. Again, those were predictions that Ed Griffin had back on March 24, 2009. Fast forward to the end of 2022, and unfortunately, we are very rapidly moving toward an impoverishment of the middle class, and as evidenced by the dictatorial and highly unscientific policies of our federal government during COVID-19, we are also losing our liberties, starting with our First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, which the current federal government has chosen to suppress by pressuring Twitter and presumably other social media giants to allowing only speech that is pleasing to the deep state to be made public on those 
platforms. So unfortunately, events seem to be unfolding very much as Ed Griffin predicted on my show back on March 24, 2009. Right now, I'm going to play a portion of my March 24, 2009 discussion with Ed Griffin, in which he explains why the Fed was created, who was responsible for its creation, and why it has been an unmitigated disaster for the American people. At the same time, it it has been used very successfully to fund the military-industrial complex and put trillions of dollars into the hands of America's ruling elite who live and control our lives from their homes in the unelected deep state. Listen closely now to what G. Edward Griffin had to say nearly 15 years ago about why the Federal Reserve was created, by whom, and why it has such disdain for gold as money. The first chapter of your book is entitled The Journey to Jekyll Island. The book starts out by talking about this clandestine gathering of a group of men who boarded a luxury train, I believe in Hoboken, New Jersey, to go to this place called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. And they were pretending to go uh, duck hunting, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell our listeners who these men were and why were they pretending to go duck hunting and what was the real purpose of their meeting? Yeah, you're quite right. It's hard to cover so much ground in so little time. Um, the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, but uh, it's much bigger than that. It's it's about uh, the nature of money. It's about economic laws. It's about uh, the abuse of uh, the power to create a nation's money and, and how that abuse leads to corruption in government and so many things that are now descending around our heads. And uh, But it ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, which is the mechanism uh, by which the United States creates money on behalf of the uh, government. And uh, the meeting to which you were referring back in 1910 at Jekyll Island was the uh, seminal meeting where a small group of uh, the wealthiest people in the world are representing their firms, seven of them, went to Jekyll Island because it was uh, out of the beaten path, it was very private, and, in fact, they even denied for quite some time that they went to such a meeting. It was a secret meeting. And it was at that meeting that they hammered together all the important details of what was to become the Federal Reserve System three years later when it was passed into law in 1913. Now, the, the reason they did this in secret and, uh, and uh, denied that they were participating is a very simple reason. The Federal Reserve was offered to the American people as an agency of the federal government, supposedly they thought it was an agency of the federal government, and it wasn't, but it was offered to them as uh, an agency which was supposed to uh, put the reins on the very powerful banking uh, dynasties in Wall Street. Uh, The people of America were very concerned by this uh, huge power, economic power that had coalesced into the hands of a a few uh, uh, Wall Street uh, investment firms. They knew that the, the... credit of the entire nation was wrapped up in a few banks and insurance companies. They were concerned about that, and they thought that the Federal Reserve System was going to put controls on those very wealthy, powerful institutions and, um, you know, and make sure that they serve the purposes of the nation rather than the private purposes of the, uh, of the corporations. And so the reason for the secrecy is that the very corporations and institutions which supposedly were to be controlled by this legislation were the ones that were drafting the legislation. They decided that, well, okay, the the people want uh, uh, some laws now to control our industry, so we're not going to wait for enemies of our industry to write those laws. 
we will do it ourselves. And we'll hide that fact. We'll let the people think that it was done by their noble politicians when, in fact, we are the ones that are drafting it. And that's the reason for the secrecy. It's a very simple and an obvious uh, logical arrangement when you think about it. And the people that went there, the seven of them were Nelson Aldridge, who was uh, the Republican whip in the Senate, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the country, uh, Abraham Piat Andrew, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but he was he came from a banking family, and that's the reason he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, because basically he had banking connections. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was President of the National City Bank of New York. Henry P. Davison was a senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton was President of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York. Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And finally, Paul Warburg was there, who was a full partner in Kuhn Loban Company, which was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And, of course, his brother, Max Warburg, was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Those are the guys that drafted the Federal Reserve Act. And when you look at the wealth which they held individually and which their banks and institutions held, according to estimates at the time, which we pulled out of the New York Times, was that they represented about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Now, that was, in other words, the very banking cartel, the industry, uh, the uh, money trust, as they called it in the newspapers those days. That was the very money trust that supposedly the uh, Federal Reserve System was supposed to control, mm. and they drafted the legislation. Well, now we jump ahead to today. W- what's the fruit of that? The reason these guys created the Federal Reserve System is so that they could use the uh, governmental power that, that backed it to make sure that they would uh, enjoy a nice, handsome profit no matter whether their businesses failed or succeeded. Because they knew that if their their businesses were probably going to fail because they were uh, they were uh, undergoing very unsound banking practices, they were lending money they didn't have. Uh, they didn't really concern themselves too much with the ability of the person to pay or the institution or country to pay back the loans, because they knew that in in the event of a crisis, they could always go to the taxpayer and get the taxpayers to put up the money to cover the losses. That was all started back in 1910. And, you know, for years, people tried to tell the American people that this is what's going on and you better look out because, you know, you're going to wind up picking up this huge bill. And nobody was interested. They said, I don't believe that. Um, And anyway, we're living well, aren't we? Look at the prosperity. Mm -hmm. Now, here we are now in 2009, and it's finally coming down the way some of us have been predicting all these years. And now people are saying, well, what happened? Well, how did this happen? How did we let this happen? Well, they let it happen is because they didn't care. Yeah, it didn't take an interest. Now it's uh, it's very 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 late. But Ed, the reasons given to us, uh, you know, constantly by the media has always been, you know, it's for our own good. They're going to uh, they're they're going to uh, manage the economy. They're going to they're going to be able to avoid uh, significant downturns in in the economy by by having more liquidity, by having the, the Federal Reserve being able to uh, to create lots of money, um, but. You know that obviously isn't uh, isn't working out too well, is it? Well, no. That's always been the argument from the very beginning, back in 1913 when they passed the the bill. It was all to help 
America was all to help you folks, the, the average person. We are doing this, the bankers are saying. We bankers are doing this, and we politicians are doing this for you folks. Not all. We don't benefit, do we? Of course not. Uh, it's it's a bunch of nonsense. It's uh, it's propaganda, and it's just amazing to me that uh, the average uh, voter is uh, is so uh, politically illiterate mm-hmm. that they fall for that stuff over and over and over again. They actually believe that the government is there to help them. You know, that's well, they Ed, actually believe that. Well, Ed, you could say in a way then that the uh, that the stated reasons for the Federal Reserve's creation has been a failure, perhaps, but but. Have, has the Fed, looking at it from their own through their own eyes, if you could do so, have, has the Fed's real reasons for being created been a failure? Do you think? Oh, it's been a, a rip roaring success. Uh-huh. Federal Reserve has succeeded on every one of the principles which they set out to to uh, to do back on Jekyll Island when they discussed the purpose of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it was to control the competition. They were they were concerned over the arrival of new banks springing up in the South and on the West Coast of the expanding nation in those days and they wanted to keep control in New York with the existing biggest banks they they wanted to be able to pass on their losses to the taxpayer they wanted to be able to create money out of nothing so as to manipulate interest rates which would drive people to the banks to borrow money at at uh, low interest rates rather than for people to save money and do whatever they wanted to do, expand business or take vacations or whatever they wanted to do with money. Instead of saving the money, they wanted to bring the people into the banks to borrow money because the banks make money only when others come in and borrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, The banks really don't want you to pay back your loans. They want you to just keep those loans open forever like a credit card statement and just send in your interest every month. Well, Ed, as I understand, you know, as the United States was a young country in the early 1900s, it was growing very rapidly, the the late 1800s, it was growing very rapidly, and there were a lot of very successful companies that were not really needing banks. They were actually growing from internally generated funds. That is, they took their profits and reinvested them so that the institutions, the, the industrial companies themselves, were actually, in a sense, banking interest, and they were crowding out the, the big New York, the money center banks. It was that then part of their reason was to avoid that competition? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. They they did not want uh, private capital formation. That was almost like a dirty phrase. They spoke, how can, we, how can we circumvent private capital formation as though it was an evil thing? They wanted people coming to the banks to borrow money rather than save it. Well, we've heard this phrase recently in the mainstream media, um, privatizing profits, socializing uh, losses. And I guess that's that's what they've been doing. But, Ed, when we're talking about now, we're talking about not billions of dollars. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and even trillions of dollars of socialized losses that the common folks are being asked to shoulder. Is that is that what's going on here? And did yeah, it, I, that it all have its origin on, back in 1910 then? That's right. It's It's been going on for a long time, but it's certainly accelerating right now to the point where I, I think the cup is going to be full. I mean, there's, there comes a point when you do have total socialized uh, government, socialized industry, socialized uh, everything, banking, health care, and so forth. Uh, you start off with 10% and then 15, 20, 30, 80, and so forth. At some point, you get to 100%. Mm. And uh, we're, I think we're very close to that, and, and these guys in Washington are, are laying out the, the roadmap to get us to that point in a very short period of time now. And when we get to 100%, I think people need to realize that not only are 
uh, is the economy totally regimented by government, but people themselves are totally regimented by government. It's and Ed, I think that it's true that uh, socialism doesn't really create wealth. It, it is a consumer of wealth. The capitalism really creates wealth. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a little bit, but one of the things I want to ask you about is gold and what what role did gold play? Gold has been the enemy of of, uh, of sort of the fractional reserve banking system that the uh, that the Federal Reserve has espoused. So, you know, when we come back, um, uh, maybe you could address that issue a little bit, or, or maybe get started on it right now for the next few seconds. Well, yeah, uh, just to get started on it, uh, gold has always been the enemy of uh, politicians and uh, bankers who want the ability to expand, you know, create money supply out of nothing, so mm -hmm. they can can collect interest on huge amounts of nothing, literally. Mm -hmm. Gold has always been a discipline which they hate. And so there's a great propaganda war to convince the American people that gold is not a good thing. You should not have a monetary system backed by gold. And I'm not quite sure why, but they've heard it so many times that uh -huh. they just repeat it. Well, we do have to go to break now, but when we come back, Ed Griffin will pick up on why sound money in the form of gold is essential to the retention of a free and prosperous capitalist society and why its absence leads to socialism and absolute misery for the masses. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Ed, before the break, we were talking a little bit about gold. We just introduced the topic. Gold is a 
subject that's near and dear to my heart. It has been very kind to me. We've uh, invested in gold and gold mining shares over the last number of years, and it's uh, it's done very well. While the equity markets have fallen out of bed, gold mining has been a very gold mining and gold itself have have been very very good for our portfolios. But I would like to get back to just asking you why it is that gold is such a problem for uh, for the Federal Reserve and for those uh, for for the establishment, frankly, right now. Yes, well, there's a group of economists out there that uh, worship at the feet of uh, John Maynard Keynes, who is a well-known collectivist uh, writer and, and economic theorist uh, some decades ago. Uh, and Keynes called gold the barbaric metal. And um, Karl Marx picked up on that theme, too. He, he thought that gold was a barbaric metal. And all of the collectivists agree with that because they see that ability to just create whatever amounts of money may be required for whatever your scheme is gives tremendous power to those who hold the ability to create the money. That's pretty obvious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Uh, but when a money supply is based on something which limits its growth, and certainly gold would be in that category, then these guys don't have the power to just manufacture money out of nothing. Like right now, Congress and the Federal Reserve would not be able to create these hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. They just would not be able to do it. Well, let me understand that. They don't have the ability with a gold standard to redistribute wealth from the people that create it, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, those people that actually create wealth to themselves. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, that's right. Uh, when, when money is backed by gold or silver or anything else of tangible value, uh, then it's supply. The supply of money always keeps pace with the growth of the goods and services within society. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good reason for that. We probably don't have time to go into all the mechanics of it, but it has always, always been that way. So that the value of the one ounce of gold or silver uh, always has re remained constant throughout those periods mm -hmm. of history where money was backed by gold or silver. Uh, just to give you a, a brief uh, example, if we had lived in ancient Rome, times of Caesar, and we had a one ounce gold coin, we would have been able to spend it and buy a very nice uh, toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. That would have cost approximately one ounce of gold. Today, thousands of years later, we have one ounce of gold. We can uh, exchange it for Federal Reserve notes, run down to the to the clothing store before the value depreciates. Yeah. We can buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. So the value, the true purchasing value of one ounce of gold really hasn't changed in thousands of years mm -hmm. because the amount of energy to produce that suit, that belt, and that pair of shoes is approximately the same amount of energy required to dig out one ounce of gold from the ground and, and purify it and put it into a coin. I can tell you, Ed, it's a very difficult task. I've been down in mines a mile under the earth, and huh? the amount of, of engineering and capital and so forth and expertise that's required to yeah. get gold from the ground is a heck of a lot harder, I think, than it is for these central bankers to create money out of thin air. Well, of course, yeah. And so the, the, the politicians and the bankers who want that power to be able to create money out of nothing to accomplish their political objectives or to collect interest on the money which they go through the motions of loaning out. That's a tremendously heady uh, power that they have. They hate the idea of having a monetary system limited by the quantity of gold or silver which people can dig out of the earth. 
So that's the war. And unfortunately, the uh, uh, the average American is not aware of that. Mm-hmm. He, he just thinks that, oh, isn't it nice that these the nice people, these uh, elected representatives in Washington, are, are giving all this money away, oh, and then they're going to help us? Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that they're giving money away that they're taking from the people in the first place and they don't understand how they're taking it. Well, they're taking it, first of all, through taxes, but that's the smaller part of the picture now with these huge amounts that they're creating. There's no way they're going to tax the American people enough to pay for all of that, So, but they're going to get it anyway, and they're going to get it through higher prices, through inflation. It won't be too much further down the line, and the average guy will be saying, how come I'm paying $35 for a loaf of bread? Right. And they're going to wonder what hit them. Ed, you know, it it has to be that way, you, you think, because there's trillions of dollars that the Obama administration is now promising to pump into the economy to bail people out or to, or for one sort of works program or another, and the Chinese don't have that kind of money. Where Where is the global savings going to come from to finance that? I guess that's the issue, isn't it? Yes, yeah, there would be no global savings. They're going to get this from the sweat of the average worker. That's where it's all coming from and always has come from when these collectivists get hold of the political machinery and start spending more than they have. Then it starts to ricochet down and eventually it hits to the average guy, the worker, who's out there working for a living, and, and, and he pays it either through taxes, direct taxes, or indirect taxes called inflation. That's the only place it ever comes from. Ed, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes to talk about housing. I know that you talked in your book about housing debacles in the past, about how the government has intervened in the housing market, and now we've had the biggest housing bubble that we've ever had, uh, and it's pulling down the whole economy, obviously, as, as you know, millions of homes cannot be financed. People don't have the wherewithal to, to fan, finance them. Would you care to just comment a a little bit on the current housing situation, and does this thing have a lot further to go before we see the bottom of it? Well, that second question is is one that I wouldn't touch uh, with a 20-foot pole because uh, I don't know how much further it has to go. Uh-huh. But I can say in general that the housing market was greatly uh, inflated or bubbled, as they say. And what that means is that uh, the number of dollars that were being spent for a piece of real estate were way out of proportion of its uh, underlying value when measured against other things. Mm -hmm. And the reason that came about is because of manipulation of the credit markets, the ability of the Federal Reserve and some of the other agencies which were politically supported to redistribute uh, credit unnaturally into certain favored areas and the home market was one of the favored areas they made mortgage rates ridiculously low and that lured people uh, is like luring a fish to grab a, a worm not realizing that there was a hook underneath the worm <laughs> it lured people to snap at those great interest rates and they said, well, I can afford that monthly payment and they moved upgraded in their housing and first thing you know they're living in semi palaces and they think this is wonderful not realizing that they had already been hooked for the contraction which was destined to come because everything eventually seeks its own level and uh, so what we're seeing now is a return to realistic values um, and all of the bubble is being squeezed out of it or all the water is being squeezed out of the sponge or however, whatever mm-hmm. analogy you want to use. What the point will be when it finally is at the realistic level, I don't know. But I suspect it has a little more to go before it really is uh, realistically compared to other things that people can buy with that same dollar. 
there's going to be a, quite a bit of pain than you suspect for the for the economy for for most people in general. Well, I think so. I, I believe so, uh, and I almost hope so. Not because I want the pain, but because if we don't have the pain, there will be no change. Uh, if we don't have the pain, the the present policies will continue. And I know what lies at the end of that road. The end of that road will be a completely totalitarian system mm -hmm. where you and I will not only have anything, any money to buy things with, but we'll also have no freedom to do anything with anything we bought in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's and where it's headed, and that worries me even more than the economic crisis. That's the worst thing, as Ron Paul has, has said. If we have our freedom, we can recover. But if we lose our freedom, it's very, very difficult to recover economically. Exactly. Ed Griffin concluded his remarks on March 24, 2009, on my show. Uh, talking about the Federal Reserve-induced housing bubble of 2008-2009 and hoped that politicians would confess their sins of the past, which would most certainly lead to tremendous pain. But, as he said, unless we do face those pains, things will only get worse, and we will end up in a totalitarian state, which will destine us, our children and our grandchildren, to untold decades of poverty and loss of our natural God-given liberties. Unfortunately, our leaders have once again, following the 2008-2009 crisis, took the easy way out by printing even more, trillions and trillions more dollars, such that we now not only have a housing bubble, but what is commonly referred to as an everything bubble. And this bubble is so large that it seems destined to blow up into a currency-destroying hyperinflation that will be akin to a financial nuclear bomb that threatens virtually all the existing institutions. Indeed, it was David Stockman who shocked me a few months ago when he predicted Chairman Powell would not kick the can down the road again because the Fed's very existence depends on keeping inflation from obliterating the dollar and blowing up the Fed with it. My next guest, Daniel Lacay, seems to be in agreement with David Stockman, when he recently wrote a short essay for the Mises Institute titled, Why Central Banks Will Choose Recession Over Inflation. Don't go away. I will be right back with Daniel Lacaye. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Dr. Daniel Lacaye. Um, he is um, a, an economist. Uh, he lives in Spain. Uh, and really what makes me really happy to have Daniel with me today is that he understands Austrian economics. There's not too many uh, well-regarded economists that, that seem to know very much about uh, Austrian economics. Most uh, economists, including those that work at the Fed, are rather, in my view, rather worthless uh, because they espouse Keynesian economics. Uh, Keynesian economics are really what we've been uh, indoctrinated with over the last many decades. I know decades ago when I took my Economics 101 course, that's what I was taught, and that seems to be the religion of the day. Uh, Keynesian economics is if government can fix everything by spending money. Um, Daniel is not only an Austrian economist, he is also a fund manager, and so he has to make decisions in a world that is growing further and further away from free market economics, I would argue. And he has to navigate through economic distortions caused by constant central bank and government intervention, as we all have to. And so that's why I'm hopeful that Daniel can help us navigate our way through as well as we start to look into a new year. I should mention that he is the author of several best-selling books, Freedom or, uh, Freedom or Equality, uh, Escape from Central Bank Trap, The Energy World is Flat, and Life in the Financial Markets. All those sound like really interesting books that I think I'd like to get my hands on sometime soon. I haven't read any of them, but I sure hope to now that Daniel's been introduced to me. He is also a professor of global economy at IE Business School in Madrid, and he is ranked as one of the top 20 most influential economists in the world in 2016 and 2017 by Richtopia. He holds a CIIA financial analyst title with a postgraduate degree in higher business studies and a master's degree in economic in, uh, investigation. He is a member of the advisory board of the Rafael Del Pino Foundation and commissioner of the community of Madrid in London. Daniel's a regular collaborator with CNBC, Bloomberg TV, BBC, Hedgeye, Seeking Alpha, Business Insider, Mises Institute, and Epoch Times, as well as an occasional consultant for the World Economic Forum, Focus Economics, The Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and other publications as well around the world. So as you can see, we're really pleased and, and very privileged to have Daniel with us. Thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jay. It's, an, it's a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, it's really good to have someone of your stature with us. For sure, I, I, I know that I've seen some of your work uh, on Zero Hedge, I believe it is, but um, not watching a lot of the mainstream media that much, I, I haven't noticed, but I will certainly be watching out for future appearances. Um, would like to focus today on why central banks will choose recession over inflation. It's an article that you wrote on December 9th. Uh, you note in, there, in that article uh, that uh, when Ill illiquidity markets 
Uh, you note in that article, and that was, as I say, December 9th, that in the past, when illiquidity in markets arose, investors could count on central banks always coming to the rescue, adding liquidity into the markets by buying treasuries or other assets. So it always made sense for investors to buy the dips. Investors got used to, uh, as I recall, the start, sort of started under Greenspan, 1987. The Greenspan put, which I believe, um, you know, go dates back to that time. So for quite a while now, investors could just say, oh, the market's starting to tank. No worries. Um, Greenspan or Bernanke or Yellen, whoever's there will come to the rescue. Why is this time different? I think that uh, the main difference is inflation. And uh, you think about what is what we have uh, rightly called the central bank put. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what it is is a massive bet against the U.S. dollar. And uh, as long as the United States was printing money and the Federal Reserve was uh, given enough liquidity to markets, but inflation remained low, or at least within the boundary that the central bank was happy with, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the central bank was very happy to continue to inject liquidity, which is basically to print money. And uh, what changes everything is inflation. And the reason why it changes everything is because the Federal Reserve is the only central bank in the world that pays attention to the global demand for the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. So if inflation starts to creep up and it remains persistent, as is the case right now, the Federal Reserve prefers to see what they call a soft landing, which is a mild recession. They prefer to see a recession and to curb inflation than to let inflation run its course and uh, enter into a period of stagflation. And the reason is because the central bank knows that they can deal with deflationary pressures. They can deal with inflationary pressures, but a prolonged period of stagflation is devastating for the economy, for governments, for citizens. It's bad for everybody. Uh So so the central bank needs to uh, basically realize and put to the people that They've made a mistake. They've made a big mistake in 2020. They increased money supply massively. They said that there was not going to be any inflation. Inflation appeared. First, they said that it was because of the base effect. Then it's, they said that it was temporary. Then that it was transitory. It doesn't matter. They invent every single uh, piece of, 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 of excuse, but they know that it's a monetary effect. Mm-hmm. So what they need to do right now is to uh, get into a small problem, which is a recession, mm-hmm. uh, to avoid a much larger, deeper and longer problem, which would be stagflation. Mm-hmm. Now, as we had in the 1970s, right? Exactly. Exactly. They know that if you react too slow to inflation and let it run and the economy starts to weaken in the entirety of the productive sector, consumers start to feel the pinch of inflation and consumption weakens. You enter into a spiral that is Mm -hmm. very difficult to solve and you don't solve it as we saw in the 70s 
And you don't solve it with fiscal policies. You don't solve it with monetary policy. And it takes a very long time to uh, address the situation and to and to clean up the problem created by probably being too aggressive before with uh, expansionary monetary policies. So you're, uh, you know, obviously, the, as you as you point out, the, the uh, central bankers don't talk about uh, mon- money creation as being the cause of inflation. They don't want to be blamed for it. Uh, they know, though, secretly that it is. Um, why? So over 20 years, you know, last 20 years or so, it was just business expansion and monetary policy. As soon as the stock market goes down, goose it a little bit with more money and everybody's happy and the, the consumer prices stay low. But I would argue, Daniel, that um, we've had inflation, massive amounts of it. But in the financial sector, you, uh, you, you would agree with that, I guess, right? Completely, completely. Yeah. We've had enormous inflation in financial assets. We've seen house prices rise to all-time highs, way above the affordability indices that we historically use to analyze excessive valuations. We have seen private equity valuations go through the roof. In less than 10 years, we had private equity deals going from being monstrously expensive at 10 times EBITDA to very cheap, <laughs> according to the the market, at 20 you know, for the same asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have seen the expansion of multiples in the S&P 500, unprecedented one, the, the, the multiples at which that we pay for a stock, the price to earnings, etc., going through mm-hmm. the roof. Same with bonds. Uh, mm-hmm. Negative yielding bonds reached more than $17 trillion globally. When you have negative yielding bonds, that means that the price of the bond is very elevated. No, So, uh, so that was already very high inflation. I would argue as well that there was very high inflation in the things that we actually uh, demanded the most. We had extremely high inflation in education, in mm-hmm. health in housing, in insurance. So it's all of that is part of very low rates and very high liquidity. But it is true that CPI, the the consumer price index, the way that it is calculated, was not high. And Mm -hmm. therefore, the Federal Reserve, central banks were relatively happy because they thought, well, you know, there is high inflation in assets, but that improves the wealth effect People feel richer. Your house is more expensive uh, if you try to sell it. Your uh, the stocks that you own, if you own them, uh, go up. So mm-hmm. everybody was relatively happy. But then in 2020, they increased massively money supply yet again. But mm-hmm. this time, much faster and much quicker than previously. Just to give you an indication, what we think, for example, as the big money printing uh, exercise of quantitative easing the first time in, t- in 2009, yeah. in 2020, it was four times higher in just a period of a few months. Mm-hmm. And it went, instead of going to uh, increased valuations of financial assets, it went directly to government spending. People started to receive checks. People started to, the, the governments started to spend on these stimulus plans, building stuff. And that's when inflation in CPI came aggressively and 
way before the Ukraine invasion. The Ukraine mm-hmm. invasion was used as an excuse. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, the uh, prices don't rise in unison for the same amount of money. If there's an exogenous factor, like mm-hmm. a war, that makes energy prices go up and the quantity of money is the same, then other prices would come down because there would be not enough money to pay for the other goods and services. The only way in which all prices rise at the same time, or the vast majority of them, as we have seen, uh, is is uh, with more uh, quantity of money. And the, the latest print of CPI in the United States is very clear. You saw how all of the uh, different elements of, of pricing were up year on year. And in many cases, things that have absolutely nothing to do with the alleged impact of the Ukraine invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, uh, the supply, there were supply restrictions uh, once that took place. And, um, you know, when the United States um, pushed for sanctions against Russia, that added to the uh, that restricted supply, which uh, mm. all other things being equal would have caused prices to rise. But if they had this enormous amount of money floating around out there in the economy, allowed the prices of everything uh, to go up. And I guess so. I mean, it's really quite dramatic. I mean, we were looking at 9.1 percent in the U.S. I think I don't know. You're in Spain, maybe mm-hmm. higher in Spain, right? Your, your inflation rate in Spain and, and some of the countries, Germany and others, had enormous... 10%, 10%, 11%. The price of the basket of, uh, you know, the, the, the average basket of a mm-hmm. consumer of the main food prices uh, has gone up 15% in Spain, for example. Mm-hmm. In Germany, inflation is, is double-digit. So very, very elevated inflation. But it's interesting what you mentioned about supply chain disruptions and the inflationary impact. Mm-hmm. If freight rates go up because of, an, because of a supply challenge mm-hmm. and there is, the, the quantity of money is the same, a lot of businesses will not be able to purchase those freights and right. or, or to hire those, those, those freights. The only way in which... Uh, that increase in freight charges moves to the whole chain is if all of the businesses, the ones that are productive and the ones that are not very efficient, all of the business can access to massive credit, i.e. more money, in order to pay for a higher price that they would not afford in, 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 in another environment. We have seen it in the past. We have seen mm-hmm. periods in which freight charges went through the roof because of, uh, uh, I don't know, because of the problems in the Suez Canal, because of many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that didn't transfer to significantly right. CPI. Right, exactly. Well, I, one point, one thing you mentioned I'd like to ask you about a little bit more. You mentioned that the Fed is the only central bank around the world that pays attention or cares or I forget how you put it, at least pays attention to the demand for dollars. Well, obviously, you know, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And I think someone called the other currencies sort of derivatives of the dollar. It, 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 so the Fed wants to see demand for the dollar, I would presume, right? It wants a strong dollar. The Fed wants uh, wants a stable dollar, not a strong uh-huh. one, not a weak one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. If you think about it, the Fed tends to act both when the dollar is too strong. Mm-hmm. You know, 
to in order to avoid a massive recessionary spiral in emerging economies that are very dependent on the US dollar. And it tends to also act when the dollar is too weak. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Fed, and I said this, it's the only central bank that pays attention to the demand for US dollars because mm-hmm. this is a key reason why the Fed has continued to hike rates into 2022 despite weakening markets and despite uh-huh. all of those market participants that were saying they're not going to dare to go further with mm-hmm. rate hikes because they need to support markets. What they're looking at is the demand for U.S. dollars. And what uh-huh. they see is that by hiking rates, what is already a very severe shortage of dollars in the world uh-huh. is actually something that is going to increase the demand for U.S. dollars. People, mm-hmm. investors all over the world will prefer to buy treasuries than to invest locally. Investors all over the world will look for a decorrelated and safe asset, which is the U.S. dollar, instead of equities, bonds, etc. So if you think about it, the Federal Reserve has one ace in its, you know, uh, in mm-hmm. its hand all the time, which is mm-hmm. that having the world reserve currency, when they overdo it in terms of inflationary policies and inflation comes, creeps up quickly, they can hike rates and they can increase pressure by reducing money supply, yet the demand for U.S. dollars doesn't go down, it goes up. Mm -hmm. However, in Europe, in the euro area, if the European Central Bank does that, it doesn't happen the same way. If the European Central Bank starts hiking rates and reducing money supply, demand for euros globally doesn't go up. So so it's very important to understand this in my perspective. Mm -hmm. Because what the Federal Reserve is basically doing is that in periods in which the dollar is weak, liquidity is ample, rates are low, you, or every central bank in the world plays the, the role of being the Federal Reserve, but without paying attention to the global demand for their currency. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, 90%, I would, say that, I would say that all of them except the Federal Reserve, all of them, what they're doing is setting their own trap because just by a few rate hikes, the Fed can easily create a tsunami of demand for U.S. dollars globally that mm-hmm. squeezes the rest of the world out of their uh, illusion of monetary sovereignty. Yeah. Well, it seems to me also, uh, you know, a stable dollar, as you say, is necessary in order for the United States to fund its, its, its enormous deficit, its exactly. enormous debt, right? Exactly. And it seems to me that, in fact, going back into the 19, uh, 1970s and Paul Volcker, I think the Europeans, um, well, I think the Europeans are obviously, they were un- unhappy that we had decided to yank gold away from the dollar. Mm-hmm. And there was pressure put on Volcker, as I understand it, to raise rates but it, but it, but right now it really hurts the Europeans. I mean, raise rates. Um, it's got to hurt the European. I mean, all these European investors that are owing dollars are all suddenly can be in a lot of trouble, right? Exactly. That is the that is the that is the central bank trap that uh-huh. I mentioned in my book, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, mm-hmm. is that the Federal Reserve 
sets uh, a monetary policy that comes from the privilege of having the world reserve currency. That privilege is maintained thanks to investor security, legal security, open market, you, you name it, many, mm -hmm. many factors. Mm -hmm. So other central banks look at what the Federal Reserve does and they say, oh, we like that. Let's start increasing liquidity. Let's start <laughs> cutting rates. Let's do the same because yeah. the Fed is doing it. If the Fed is doing it, why can't we do it? No? Mm -hmm. And obviously the reason why you can't do it is because the, the, the demand for your currency, for their currency, is not the same. In the case of the euro area, you have another problem added to it, which is in the United States, the enormous deficit of the United States is funded by the global demand for US dollars. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So one unit of debt of the United States is an asset, for example, for the Chinese central bank or the Indian central bank. Mm -hmm. So that that uh, is funded by the rest of the world, if, if, if I may. Yeah. Uh, on, on the other hand, what happens in the euro area is that you have the only currency in the world that is a world reserve currency uh, widely accepted, like the euro, that has redenomination risk, i.e. that the, at, at some point a government goes crazy and decides to leave the euro, and you have a massive redenomination of debt that is an asset for other people mm, that mm -hmm. could be uh, uh, that could be an, an absolute disaster globally. Think about mm -hmm. this for a second. Yes, Imagine yes. That tomorrow, as some people are, are saying, uh, that there could be a risk that Italy leaves the euro. If mm -hmm. Italy leaves the euro and suddenly all debt issued by Italy is redenominated to lira, Imagine. Wow. Think about what that means for the assets of the central bank that has purchased uh, Italian debt mm -hmm. as, uh, as, a, as, as an asset that maintains the strength of the central bank of Japan, of India, of Pakistan, you name it. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. So that is a big problem. So the, the, the ultimately, what we have is that the reason why there has never been a real fiat currency alternative to the US dollar mm -hmm. is all other countries that could actually be contenders to be the world reserve currency decided to make the same mistakes of the Federal Reserve, but worse. And therefore, you, you, the alternative to the US dollar doesn't exist only because any other alternative, the monetary policy implemented by that country uh, is, I, is worse and the level of liquidity required to fuel the global economy is also much worse, be it mm -hmm. the euro, the yuan, it doesn't, there's no alternative. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly uh, it seems like there should be. And obviously, uh, it, it you know, having the world's reserve currency is also a curse in some ways. As we've seen it hollow out, the United States has to run these constant trade deficits in order to re maintain yeah. its reserve currency status, which means we've lost a lot of great paying jobs and, and we're not wealth producers anymore. We just print money. That's all we do. Daniel, we're just about out of time. My engineer tells me only in less than three minutes and I wanted to get to so much more. Um, given so I, I 
how far are they going to push this? Are they going to push? Is the Fed going to push this until the system cracks and breaks down? No, not until the system cracks. They will push it literally until the the world demands the their product, the U.S. dollar, to mm-hmm. uh, to a level that brings inflation to the United States uh, to a much lower level. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. secures the status of world reserve currency for another five to ten years, which basically uh-huh. it has done. Uh huh. Yeah, that's you think that's pretty much baked in the cake. I think it's basically baked in the cake. I think that uh-huh. if if I was today the the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I would be extremely happy because I can hike rates, curb inflation, and reduce liquidity, and the impact on the financial flows into the United States is positive. Imagine. It's almost like a dream come true. And well, I why, guess it is. <laughs> but there's a flip side, and you mentioned it before, which is yeah. that the United States is becoming a debt machine. All right, and Daniel, would you, I, you just, I just have to ask you this. We only have 30 seconds or so. Uh, what are you, as a money manager, as a fund manager, what are, you, what are you focusing on? What are you buying in 2023, and what are you avoiding? Um, I'm buying gold. I'm buying. I'm, I continue to be uh, positive on the U.S. dollar. I am very, very negative on Latin American equities and Latin American currencies. Uh, positive on India equities. Uh, negative on China and uh, negative on European sovereign and high yield debt. All right, we'll have to leave it go at that, Daniel. Thank you so much for being with us. I certainly hope we can talk to you again sometime in the near future. You've got so much to offer. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime soon. Well, folks, we do have to go now. That's it for this week. Next week, Michael Oliver and Alistair McLeod will join me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.